As I speak to you this evening, the city of Mosul in Iraq is being rebuilt. Last year, after three years of occupation, a group calling themselves the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, commonly known as ISIS, were defeated in battle and driven from the city. But that victory was pretty costly. Estimates tell us that around 600,000 people remain displaced and approximately 60,000 homes are uninhabitable in the city. The city's business and government sectors are crippled with at least 20,000 commercial and government buildings destroyed. And recent figures suggest that around 10,000 civilians, that's men, women and children, not combatants, were killed in the battle to recapture the city. Now we're familiar with this. We, we see this on the news all the time. And there's a tendency for those of us who live in this part of the world to dismiss that as, well, look, that's the Middle East. We know that's a violent place. It doesn't really happen here. Yet a generation ago, in World War II, a war was fought largely in and over the states of Western Europe, between Western powers. World War II claimed 60 million lives. 48% of those lives were civilians. During World War II, the Allied High Command, that's our side, not the Nazis, adopted a policy of terror bombing or obliteration bombing of German civilian centres. The motivation was to literally wipe out entire civilian cities of Germany to demoralise the German people. On September the 11th, note the date, 1945, our side firebombed the city of Darmstadt, creating a, storm, a firestorm one mile high, which incinerated approximately 12,000 people. And Darmstadt wasn't an isolated example. Between the 24th of July and the 3rd of August in 1945, Hamburg was attacked. And on the night of the 27th, the bombings from these attacks created a firestorm with temperatures up to 800 degrees, melting roads, asphalt, and fleeing civilians who found their feet stuck in the molten tar while they were burnt alive. Okay. And I could go on. I've talked on the ethics of war in the past, and people have said to me, oh, look, you give these clever-sounding arguments, but at the end of the day, somebody is dead. Now, I don't agree with that approach. I don't think we should just adopt an emotional approach towards this question. I think the fact that this is such an important issue means we should think about it clearly. But it also means we should be realistic about it and understand what we are talking about. You know, real people are dying and suffering now in our countries and the nations we live in have inflicted death and destruction upon people not too long ago. I've been asked to address the question, what is God doing about war and hatred? And when the question is phrased that way, I think often evangelical churches don't really answer that question. Frequently what we do is we answer a different question, which is, is it morally acceptable to go to war? And we ask questions like, should Christians serve in the military? Or we ask questions like, should governments fight wars? And we've been pretty good at answering those questions. I've seen lots of literature on those questions. I've, I've, I've published articles on that question. But often we don't ask the bigger question about what's God doing about war and what does the gospel mean for war and all that sort of stuff. And the reason for that is, I think, is that often in our churches, we understand the gospel in a fairly, what I call, truncated way. The gospel is presented in terms of, how can I go to heaven when I die? And it's presented in individualistic terms. So the idea is, God wants a relationship with me. I have rejected him, so he dies for me. This shows how much he values me. And... As a result, if I do certain things, I can go to heaven and live a happy life. And that's often the way the gospel is presented in our churches today. And it's not that this is incorrect, but I think it's incomplete to what you see the gospel presented as in the New Testament. And so what I want to do today is I want to give a bigger picture to you of what the gospel is in the Bible. And I want to look particularly how this picture, this story of the gospel, addresses the problem of war and peace. And I'm going to do two things. One thing I want to look at is what I call the backstory, understanding the kind of Old Testament backstory to the New Testament so you understand what the New Testament's about and how war fits into that. And secondly, I want to look at this question of what actually was the gospel that the New Testament authors were trying to preach. So let's begin with the Old Testament backstory. Now, I'm sure all of you have watched a TV show and you've probably watched a series on Netflix and you might have suddenly gone to an episode and not really got what was going on in the episode because you haven't seen the previous episodes before it. And you've gone halfway through and it's like, well, I don't quite get this. Okay? Sometimes when we read the New Testament, it's a bit like that. Because the New Testament is 
preceded by a long narrative in the Old Testament which really sets up the questions and problems that the New Testament is trying to address. So I'll briefly go over this backstory. So we all know the Old Testament opens with the story in Adam and Eve. We know that they desired to be like God. And so because they desired to be like God, they disobeyed God and they got expelled from the garden and they were barred from the tree of life. In other words, human beings faced death and they lost eternal life. And this is what theologians call the fall. And this is obviously the central problem mankind faces. We face the problem of sin and we face the problem that we lack eternal life. And so the gospel comes to solve that problem. It wants to give us forgiveness, it wants to give us sanctification, and it wants to give us eternal life. So it's not wrong to focus on those things. But notice that the early chapters of Genesis don't end with the fall and then jump straight into the solution. All right? What's the next thing that happens in the book of Genesis? Well, the next thing that happens is the story of Cain and Abel. You know, Cain and Abel offer sacrifices. Abel's is accepted, Cain's isn't. And so in jealousy, Cain murders his brother. And God responds with this comment. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. In other words, there's this thing called murder and it's unjust and somebody's been killed and there's this problem of justice. Now, it's really interesting when you read the story of Cain and Abel to see how the author tells the story. Sometimes you've got to read the Old Testament really carefully because the people who wrote the Old Testament were great storytellers. They were used to, in a culture which didn't have writing like we do, they used to tell these stories in a way so the reader would understand what they're getting at. And in the story, there's lots of stuff where when they tell the story of Cain and Abel, they deliberately make it sound like the story of Adam and Eve. So I've got some examples up there in the PowerPoint. In Genesis 4, 6, God says to Abel, sin is crouching at the door and it's desirous for you, but you must master it. But a chapter earlier, he said to Eve, your desire will be your husband for your husband and he will rule over you. Now in Hebrew, you can see in English, those are roughly similar. In Hebrew, they're even more similar. The words are, there's lots of parallels between the words, right? In Genesis 4.9, God says when he interrogates Abel, he says, where is your brother Abel? In Genesis 3, God says to Adam, where are you? Um, God interrogates Abel saying, what have you done? In Genesis 3, God interrogates Adam, what is this you have done? And in both counts, when God passes sentences, his sentence, he says, you are cursed from the ground. In both accounts. And in both accounts, they are expelled from the ground and have to wander. Right? And then the story, author goes on to tell the story of Cain's lion, the lion which ends at Lamech. And Lamech says, For I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain has avenged sevenfold, then Lamech has avenged seventy-sevenfold. And again, there's an allusion back to the story of Cain. Now what the author of the Old Testament is doing here is he's deliberately creating a written deja vu moment. You're supposed to read this and realize, oh, that's the same story as Adam and Eve. That's right, that's the same story, and that's the point the author's making. The problem of violence, the problem of war and killing each other, is not a new problem. It's not suddenly that, oh, we've got religion in the world, or we haven't got democracy in the world, or we haven't got the right political system in the world. It's basically the same problem that Adam and Eve had when they lost, when they were expelled from the garden. They desired to be like God, and they got expelled. Abel wanted God to favor him, and he got expelled. Basically, the problem was that sin was crouching at his door and he needed to master it. And killing was just another way this is manifested. Just as it was manifested a particular way with Adam and Eve, it's manifested a particular way in their descendants. Okay. And it's important to realize that I had a neighbor when I was growing up, and I grew up in Hamilton, and I had a neighbor who lived next door who was decorated with what's called an MBE, a very um, prestigious award you can get. And this was because in 1942... He was flying um, a bomber raid or over Europe, and he was shot down by the Luftwaffe, and he was put, made, made a prisoner of war, and he escaped from, I think, seven times from different POW camps. If any of you have ever seen those kind of movies about POW of great escapes, that was actually what he did in real life. And he won, a, um, he won an MBE for this. Now, he was captured too early in the war to be part of the sort of terror bombing that I talked about at the start of my talk. But I always was struck when I heard about the, the, the terror bombing and the obliteration bombing. I was always struck by the fact 
my gosh, people just like my next door neighbour drop those bombs. That man next door that I see across the way who does gardening and sometimes talks to me and sends his kids to school who we knew quite well. Everyday guy, normal guy, was a fighter pilot in World War II. He was basically the same kind of person as dropped the bombs on Dresden or Darmstadt or Hamburg. In other words, it's not people who are these great psychotic monsters that do these things. It's people just like you and I, and that's the point. Just as Adam and Eve had a desire to be like God, and they manifested in a particular way, Cain and Abel had certain desires. Instead of having the correct self-control, it manifests itself as murder. Okay? Now, of course, the story in the Old Testament, it reaches, a sort of, it reaches a sort of pinnacle. You get the story of the flood, where violence is full of the world. The world is full of violence. Notice the theme is being repeated again. And then you get the Tower of Babel, where all the nations in the world want to rise up to heaven. Again, mankind wants to be like God. And as a result, they are cursed and they're scattered. And so now you don't just have people who will kill each other out of this desire to be like God. You've got nations divided into nation states who are divided against each other because they all want to be like God. Okay? You've got nationalism. And this is important that you realize this. It's not just the story of Adam and Eve. It goes all the way to the Tower of Babel because at this point, the Old Testament really picks up. And you hear the story of a man called Abraham and God promises him what? He says, through you, all the nations will be blessed. I'm going to make you into a country. Into a dis- I'm going to give you a descendant. And through that descendant, all the nations will be blessed. This comes just after all the nations have been cursed. All right? Again, the author's not, this isn't a coincidence. The author is making a point. This story of Abraham, this community he's going to create through Abraham, through Abraham's seed, through this community, God is going to bless the nations and he's going to resolve all the problems that have just happened in the early part of the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is entirely about this nation trying to solve this problem, this agreement between Abraham and his descendants. And so the story tells us continually about Israel being called to be this kind of nation, to be a light to the nations, to to set up a a community where, where the nations of the world will be blessed and about them failing to do it. And it goes on how they fail to live up to this calling. God responds to them by giving them a king, David, and promising that his throne will be secure. But the Old Testament records that despite God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, Israel violated after centuries of being warned and centuries of being asked by prophets to change course, they lose the land and go into exile. And the and the Davidic kingship under David is ended. They're in exile. And this situation creates a real theological problem for the authors of the Old Testament. What about the promises God gave Abraham? What about the promise that through Israel the whole world will be put to right? What about the promise that David will always be on the throne? How can this be the case if Israel is in exile? And there are books like Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel that are largely about this entire problem. And so in the Old Testament, the prophets put forward the promise that in the future, Israel is going to be restored. As a nation, they will be rebuilt. A descendant of David, who comes to be known as the Messiah or the Mashiach or the king, will be put back on the throne. Those who have oppressed others will face justice. And nations will stream to Israel and learn about God's ways and start to obey his laws and the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, part of this is that the dead will rise and immortality and eternal life will come. Right? That's part of this, this promise. But it's part of it. It's not the whole of it. Another part of it is that God will deal with the problem of war and peace. So if the next um, should be the next thing on the PowerPoint. No, there was a... Yeah, okay. So Yeah, so... Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And will be raised up above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. This was part of the promise when this king comes, when this kingdom comes about, and David sits back on the, David's descendants sit back on the throne, 
The nation of Israel will be rebuilt in a way where all the nations of the world start to learn about God's laws and start obeying them, and this will mean that they cease to engage in violence. That's part of the promise that you see in the Old Testament. You need to understand all that background to understand what really goes on in the New Testament because this is the concern that the New Testament writers really are hammering at. So when you come to the Gospels, what you find is the central message that you find in the Gospels is this thing called the kingdom of God. When Jesus is introduced, he doesn't say, I have a wonderful plan for your life. If you come to me, um, I'll get you into heaven. What he says is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's saying is, you know that promise that you had, that God had, it's about to happen. See, they lived at this time the Jews had come out of exile and they were living back in their land and the temple had been rebuilt. So there's a sense in which they've been restored. But there's a sense of David weren't on the throne. Caesar was on the throne. And he was an oppressive pagan king. And the nations went flooding to Israel and learning their ways. And the world was still a mess. And some people were asking, God, you made these promises through the prophets. When are you going to do this? When are you going to bring this king and do this? When are you going to establish this kingdom? When's this king going to come and start fixing these problems? When are the nations going to start listening to you? And so Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he's saying, this is about to happen. So because it's about to happen, you need to think about how you're living your life. Are you going to live as loyal to, loyal to the king or aren't you? Because it's going to happen right now. Okay. And this is the point. The gospel, right? The, the, the apostles understand the resurrection of Christ to vindicate this claim by Jesus. And so they preach that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Christ is not, the word Christ isn't a surname. Right? It's not Jesus Christ. Right? In fact, Paul often uses the term Christ Jesus. Right? He's literally saying, that's the title that means the King Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Right? They understood Christ's resurrection to mean that he had been that this kingdom had come, that he had been enthroned as king. And so the Gospel of Luke, the, the book of Acts starts with what? With Jesus ascending, right? The idea he's enthroned, right? And what are, the, what are the disciples told to do? Well, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. That is what Isaiah prophesied, that all the nations of the world would be taught the commands of God. You see? You see the picture? And so this is what the gospel message is about. When they're announcing it, they're announcing good news. The good news is that the kingdom has come, that Jesus is king. And so all those promises that God gave in the Old Testament, they're happening right now. That's what the New Testament is trying to get across. Okay? But people, this doesn't seem right. How can this, this carpenter be the, the Messiah? How can he be the king? There's a joke. There's Caesar's on the throne. He's been crucified and killed. Maybe he rose from the dead, but we don't see the world the way... We would expect if God just came in and bang and set up a kingdom. What are you talking about? Well, Jesus gave a series of parables to his followers to explain to them what the kingdom of God meant, how it was going to work, and to correct misunderstandings they might have had at the time. And I'm going to look at three of them here, which will help us to understand how this relates to the issue of war. So the first one is parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. So it says, he presented them another parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And it is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so big that the birds of the air come and rest in its branches. He spoke to them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was leavened. Now he gives two pictures here. The first one is the idea of a mustard seed, which is a pretty small seed growing into a large tree in which birds perch. In the Bible translation I've used, you'll see that the reference to the birds of the air and nesting in its branches is in capital letters. And the reason is, is that's the translator's way of telling you that that's actually a citation from the Old Testament. Okay? And that's an image used in the book of Daniel for a world empire, specifically for the Babylonian Empire. So the idea is that the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom God's setting up on the world, in the world, it's going to start tiny. It's going to start really small. Twelve fishermen in Palestine. 
But then as more people acknowledge this king and more people submit their lives to this king, more and more people are going to be under this kingdom until it becomes a massive world empire. Until this king is ruling over millions of people. Right? So it starts small and it grows large. Second thing about this, second picture he uses is of leaven. Now the image of yeast, if you look at how the image of yeast is used as a metaphor in the Bible, it's frequently used to refer to someone's influence. So at one point Jesus says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Right? He's not saying beware of their bread, right? He's, he's beware of their influence, right? Paul says at one point he, he kicks someone out of the church of Corinth and he says, a little yeast leavens the whole dough. So he's saying this person's a bad influence on your community, right? So the kingdom of heaven starts small, grows large, as large numbers of people embrace Jesus as king. And what does that do? Well, that transforms the world we live in. See, when people adopt Jesus as king, that means they're adopting him as the authority in their lives, as the ruler over them. And that means they submit to him and obey him. And that means they change their behavior. And if large numbers of people in a society do this over a period of time and teach their children to do it and teach others to do it, it changes that society. And this is true with regard to violence. If you go into a society where there's widespread violence and they start repenting and they start making Jesus king of their lives and they start learning his commandments and they start telling the kids to do this and they start encouraging others to do that, that community's attitude and practices of violence will change dramatically. Right? And I actually think that you can, I haven't got time to go into all the detail here, I think you can make a case historically that this is in fact what has happened in many places around the world and at many times. I can't give you the stories. There are hundreds of stories, for example, of conscientious objectors, people who refuse to fight in a war because of their commitment to the gospel. There are hundreds of stories of violent communities like Europe in the early Middle Ages who, got, who changed their practices of warfare, changed what they do, brought in place conventions limiting warfare. Much of our international law on warfare comes straight out of church law in the Middle Ages. You know, laws that say that you can't attack another nation unless it's defensive. You can't shoot non-combatants, all that sort of stuff. Most of that comes out of medieval laws of war, which were used to restrict the violence that existed in the early Middle Ages. Right? So I can't get into this in great detail, but I think this is true. I think that as the kingdom of heaven has grown and more and more people have made Jesus king and attempted to live by his life, this has changed the way violence has occurred in the world. Anyone here seen the, the Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton thing that's going on in here? Anyone seen that, right? How does Alexander Hamilton die? The end of the story. Jill, right. Why? Because men at that point in history thought when they had a disagreement, they should shoot each other as a solution. Right? Doesn't happen anymore. One of the reasons is the influence of the church. Do you know that? Okay, so that's just one example. But then you might say, well, hang on, hang on, man, if this is the case, why hasn't war ended? The gospel's been around for 2,000 years. Surely if the kingdom of God has come and this is the, the plan, shouldn't um, violence have disappeared? Well, now I want to look at the next parable in the book of Matthew that, that Jesus mentions. If someone put this up. Okay. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tears among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tears became evident also. The slaves of the landover came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tears? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, for while you're gathering up the tears, you may uproot the wheat with them. I allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, First gather up the tears and bind them in bundles and burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay? Now Jesus goes on to explain this parable. The man who sows the seed is God sowing the message of the kingdom. Okay? The wheat are those who respond to the kingdom. They say, yes, we accept that this guy has been enthroned, that Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to submit our lives and follow the Messiah. We're going to make him king of our lives. The wheat are those who don't respond. Right? They decide they're not going to submit their lives to the king. Right? You know I mean? I mean, yeah, that's the, sorry, those are the weeds, the tears, right? The harvest is the end of the age. So once you understand this, you see the picture that Jesus paints. He's qualifying what he's just said about the kingdom of God. 
So he's talked about it being gradual. He's talked about it having this influence. But then he qualifies it. First, when the message is preached, sometimes people will embrace the message in kingdom and they will start submitting their lives to Christ and you'll start seeing transformation in their lives. Slow, gradual transformation as the mustard seed grows. But not everyone will do this. Some people won't respond correctly to the message of the kingdom. That's, that's the weeds, that's the tears, right? Second, God will tolerate this for a time. The relationship between good and evil in this world is such that the two are mixed up in such a way that God tolerates evil because of various goods that will come about as a result of that evil. He doesn't want to eliminate that evil because if he does, he'll eliminate some of the good. Right? So he tolerates this. Okay? And again, I think this is obviously historically inaccurate. While the gospel has had this influence on the world and many people have turned from violence, many haven't. And God hasn't intervened into history to stop them immediately. Right? Similarly, sometimes when we look back in history, we can see that those violent incidences are so tied up with other things in history that it's pretty hard to see without radically changing the world and the laws of nature and human psychology and what have you, how you could remove the evil, those wars without removing a whole lot of other stuff. So, for example, when I hear about the destruction in the city of Mosul, I think to myself, oh, that's awful, that's absolutely terrible. But then part of me thinks, thank God Islamic State were driven out. Right? Had two effects, good and bad. Right? The third point is why God, what God will tolerate evil and evil people in his kingdom for a time, in the long term, he'll put an end to war. So the harvest is the end of the age. And so, yes, God will tolerate people who don't submit their lives fully to him and as a result engage in violence. But at the end of the age, when his kingdom is finally set up in its fullness, those who practice lawlessness will be destroyed just as chaff is when you throw it into a fire. Or just when you gather up the wheat and chuck it in a fire like a farmer would in that culture. Right? I mentioned earlier in my talk the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. In the last chapter of Revelation, there is a picture of the Garden of Eden restored. And the tree of life, which has been barred from humanity, is now this, it's all on the side of the river and it grows its crops in 12 seasons and everyone can take of it. And then it says, and its fruit are for the healing of the nations. So the curse of Adam and Eve and the curse of the Tower of Babel is going to be fixed. People are going to gain eternal life. All the nations were divided. They're going to be united together, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, praising Jesus as Lord, as King, as Messiah. And war will be dealt with. So those are the three things that, that those parables put together. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think what this means for us, it's very easy to look at war and point your finger over there and look at that person and say, oh, look what's happening here. But the key takeaway point from this is that the gospel is about claiming that Jesus is the Messiah and he's calling on all the nations of the world to renounce hatred and violence and revenge and angry, aggressive killing and what have you. And he's calling on his church to call people into that and he's calling on people to listen to that call and submit their lives to him as Messiah, as king. And that means to, in their own lives, begin to deal with these issues. And that's why there's so much teaching about forgiveness and love and turning the other cheek and loving your neighbors and loving your enemies and so on in the Gospels, right? Part of the Gospels is you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and when you say Jesus is Lord, that's not something you put on your T-shirt or a bumper sticker you stick on your car. That's not what that means. To confess Jesus as Lord is to say he is the king, therefore I submit to his rule. And that ultimately is the long-term solution to war. War happens because people don't submit to the rule of God. Adam and Eve sinned because they wanted to be like God, and so they disobeyed him. Abel sinned because he was jealous, and he disobeyed God. Tower of Babel, was, they, were united, they were divided Bible because they wanted to be like God, so they rose up and, and tried to put themselves in this place. They were rebelling. Okay? And so this is the real message. As, as, as people who are Christians, we are called to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. That's why we're called Christians, Christ, right? And to live lives that follow him and see his kingdom built in our lives and the lives of our churches and the lives of the greater world. And as we do that, violence will be checked, dealt with, eliminated in all kinds of situations which we may not you know, be aware of. Anyway, let's pray about that. Father, we, um, 
we first confess that we are people who, like Adam and Eve, are proud. We desire to be like you. Like Abel and like Cain, we get jealous. We get competitive. We feel hatred. We feel anger. And we are capable of great evil. Just as the people who dropped the bombs on Damastad were everyday people, they were like us. Had we lived in the 1940s, many of us may have done the same thing. Lord, help us to know that you are the Lord. You are the Messiah. Help us to live lives where we submit to you, where we love our enemies, where we turn the other cheek to offenses, where we forgive others, where we teach these to others, and we live in hope that your kingdom will come and we will see the day when nation will not take up nation, war against nation anymore. Amen. Just stay up here. Uh, okay. We're going to do some question time now. Oh, is this way? So people have sent in those questions to that um, number. Got some co- cool stools that are question stools. Don't know why we okay. call them that, but there you go. Oh, this is great. This is a chance to sit down at the front. Um, so there's a few questions. Uh, number one's already on the screen. Uh, can a perfect being create something imperfect? Yeah, I actually think that a perfect being can. Um, I don't see... Well, part of the problem is, is there is a problem here is there's an assumption in the question that God could have created a perfect world. And the problem with that question is it's a bit like saying, can you count to infinity? Right? If I count, you can't count to infinity. No matter what number I count to, I can always get higher. So there's a lot of stuff, a lot of people write today in philosophy and theology who suggest the idea of a perfect world is actually a, a contradictory notion because you know, no matter how many happy people you create, you can always create more happy people. No matter how much happiness you give them, you could always give them more happiness. So, so I don't necessarily think that a perfect being would create a perfect world. I'm not sure that that's logically possible to have a perfect world. No matter what world you can think of, no matter what um, situation you have, it's possible for God to... You could say, well, God could have done better. There's no kind of upper limit on you know, how good things could be. So I, I don't think... The idea that because God's perfect, he must create a perfect world is correct. I think, that, that, I think that's, that's based on an assumption, which is false. And I think God has to create a good world, a world where ultimately the amount of evil in the world is less than the amount of good. But I don't think there's any requirement to, to create perfection. So, yeah, so a long-winded answer. But yeah. uh, and the short answer is look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. Uh, question two. Uh, if religion isn't the main cause of war in the world, uh, what is? <laughs> Okay, well, so notice this question has this word main cause. I think it's important to, 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 to note that. So there have been hundreds of thousands of wars in human history. If you're going to say something is the main cause of it, then you have to do more than point out two examples and say, look at that, that's the main cause of war. Right? Now, I was aware of an encyclopedia that was written some years ago where a historian, a military historian, decided to write an encyclopedia which sort of documented every recorded war in human history. It was several hundred thousands of these wars. And when he counted the number of wars that were fought in the name of religion, it was close to around 4%. So 96% of wars aren't fought over religious reasons. Okay? The famous war the ancient Greeks talked about, the Trojan War, was fought over a woman. Right? Okay? Um, Wars have been fought for land, they've been fought for resources, they've been fought for disputed places, you know, um, they've been fought over oil, they've been fought over all measure of things. They've been fought over people's pride, they've been fought over honour, right? So the main cause of war is that people get competitive. People, there's things that people want that other people have, there's things that they are upset about or in conflict with other people about. Often it's tied up with pride, often it's tied up with greed, often it's tied up with, you know, um, an inability to hear another person's viewpoint, often it's tied up with their own sense of who they are and how it's defined against another person. And this can overflow into violence. Um, sometimes that manifests self, itself in a religious way. Often when you get religious wars, what happens is one group of people who occupy one piece of land have a particular religion, and another group of people who want that piece of land have a different religion, and you end up with a religious war over the land. Right? The religion is actually a marker for who lives where and the disputes over the land. Right? Um, often religion, when you have religion wars, religious wars, it's often people define themselves a particular way. They say, I am this religious group, and that's my identity, and this group over here threatens my identity, 
and they have a different religion to me. And so their religion is really a marker for pride and identity and you're feeling slighted by someone else and so on. So I would argue that most wars are not fought for religious reasons. And even when they are, it's usually about pride, it's usually about greed, it's usually about something else which religion has become tied up with. Um, you've got Jesus in Matthew 15 saying that it's what comes out of a person's heart mm-hmm. uh, that is what defiles them and makes us evil. Mm-hmm. So those ideas of, of, of evil, of pride, of desire, um, they all come from broken people like us who could <clears throat> be just like your neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah helpful. Uh, question, next question. How would you respond to those who cite Christian wars such as the Crusades as evidence that Christianity does not reduce war, warfare and promotes violence. Yeah, good question. So, so notice the question, the Crusades are one example of a war. Right? If you're going to say that Christianity doesn't reduce violence, you can't look at history and say, here's one case where violence is done in the name of Christianity. Therefore, obviously, it doesn't reduce violence because there are hundreds of thousands of wars. Right? It, it would just be a bad sample group. Any of you who are trained in the sciences would know you can't talk about a trend like that on a single case. But the second thing, I think, if you look at the historical context of the Crusades... I think the, the situation is just far too nuanced and complicated for that argument to even have plausibility. So when Pope Urban preached the first crusade around 1000 AD, um, it was just after he had condemned a whole lot of violence that was happening in Europe, and it was just after they had established the Peace of God movement in Europe, which was trying to stop the feudal, the feudal lords riding around violently killing one another, and the church put in place really strict discipline about you can't attack women and children, you can't fight on certain days of the week. You can't do this, you can't do that. And so it was actually in a context where violence had been curtailed in Europe. Um, Secondly, it was in response to, at the time the Crusades happened, what had happened was the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, um, were under attack from Islamic forces that had uh, gradually attacked and taken over large chunks of land in the Eastern Empire, and they were worried they were all going to be enslaved. And they called to the West and said, can you send some soldiers to come and reinforce our armies because we're under attack? And at the same time, Jerusalem, which was under Islamic control, Christians began to be persecuted in Jerusalem. So I think it's... Now, in that context, Pope Urban said, look, you you guys, you're fighting in Europe. You're doing this terrible stuff. I'm having to put these rules in place to stop you. If you've got this ability to fight, why don't you go down and help the emperor in Byzantium and use your skills to actually help some people? And that was the basic motivation behind the Crusades originally, right? It was based on that kind of idea. Um, Now, I'm not saying I agree with the Crusades. Lots of things went out of control. Lots of bad things happened. Many things that that actually happened, the church condemned. Um, But the point is, I think it's just superficial to sort of look at that case in history and say, oh, this is a proof that Christianity encourages violence. I would say that 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 happened in a context where there were lots of other factors at play, um, in a context where the church was actually trying to stop violence and had stopped violence and was working against violence. And another point I make about that is many people aren't aware that the time the Crusades happened is the same time as the Mongol Empire was going on. When people like Genghis Khan and his descendants created the largest world empire in history, larger than the British Empire was, largest world empire in history, largely by genociding all their opponents. So the Crusades was a tiny skirmish in this part of the world where in this part of the world wars that had nothing to do with religion were genociding people by the thousands. And there was wars of conquest and wars of aggression and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I think if you, you use the Crusades as an example, that Christianity was somehow you know, promoting violence more than what was going on normally, I think that would be incorrect. I think you've got a situation where violence was pervasive, violence was, was, was happening all the time, and the church was actually trying to deal with violence and limiting it in certain ways. Yeah. Okay, uh, how should we then as Christians feel... Um, when we hear of a terrorist leader like Osama bin Laden being killed or executed, is that something to be happy about or your, your, your thoughts? Well, specifically with Osama bin Laden, I must admit I had, I had mixed feelings about that because I think the, the manner in which it happened to me, there were, there were crucial questions which I, I was morally uncomfortable with. And then the question was, was bin Laden firing back or was he surrendering at the time he was shot, Right. And a lot of people said that he was unarmed. And I think if the U.S. killed him without trial when he was unarmed, that's problematic morally. Um, but if you put aside that, those questions, I think there are times, my view is there are times when governments can and should use force to 
respond to certain kinds of evils in the world. I think if someone came into this room today and, and started gunning people down the, and the armed defenders squad came in, they'd be quite legitimate in using force if necessary to take out the gunman, my view. Um, and I think, so I think that can be perfectly justified. However, I don't think it's something we should delight in and celebrate and jump up and down and say, wahoo, they shot the guy, isn't that great? No. I think it's a, it's a tragedy that it happens. Right? It shouldn't have to happen um, because those events shouldn't happen. So even when it comes, we can say something is just, but that doesn't mean we should sort of rejoice or delight in it. You know, where there should be, a, I think, a, a, a soberness about this, a somberness about this, saying, yes, it was just, but it was also tragic that we had to do that. And I wish we didn't. Um, what are your views then on war uh, in the Old Testament? Well, it depends on what part of the Old Testament you're talking about. <laughs> There's lots of war in the Old Testament, and, and, and you can't talk about war in the Old Testament as a category because there are different events. So, so there are many wars in the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Judges, um, some of them are defensive wars. Other wars in the book of Judges are actually condemned by the author. If you read the book of Judges carefully, um, a lot of the book of Judges is actually about the author saying, look how terrible his wife's behaving. And that's why the book is so full of horrific stuff. But you, you, know. you have got sections where God has said, go sure. in. Yeah, sure. Uh, so we talk about those sections. Take out so this there, there are sections, I mean, I've written a whole book on this, but there are sections in, in, in the Old Testament where it goes, go into the Old Testament and kill everybody. What I'll say really briefly, I can't get into my whole position on it. Um, what I'll say really briefly is those are considered, even the Old Testament, to be exceptional cases. So if you look in Deuteronomy 20, where their command is probably articulated the clearest, it's in the series of a rules of war about how to conduct war with the nations around you, the nations outside Israel. And it sort of says, you know, when you go to war, you know, spare the men, women, and children. I mean, spare the women and children. Try and negotiate peace first. All this stuff it says, except in the case of the Canaanites, right? So it's a, a particular exception that God granted for a particular time and a particular place. I don't think it's a, a, a normative command to all people. And this happens in the, in the Bible quite a lot. If you read the Bible carefully, in the book of Genesis, God comes to Abraham and says, look, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place that I give you. Now, it would be a really bad biblical interpretation of, well, okay, I've got to go and leave and go to Ur of the Chaldees. God's telling me to do that, right? No, we'd understand, no, that was the command God gave Abraham, right? Some commands in the Bible are to specific people for specific things. And I think the, the command in the Old Testament is God is saying there, in this particular case, this particular circumstance, I want you to not follow the normal rules of war. Now, that's morally problematic, and, and to me, the question comes down to, do we think that the, the, the duty to, to not kill non-combatants is this kind of thing that can never, in any circumstance whatsoever, you know, no matter how extreme things are, be such that God could never support it? And I, in my book, I argue that that's not necessarily plausible. I argue that, that, that there might be really rare circumstances where a being who was omniscient and knew all the factors might be able to authorize a command like that. But it would have to be rare and exceptional. It wouldn't be the norm. And it certainly wouldn't be something as we as New Testament believers think, oh, that's a, that's a model for, for us to follow. So, yeah, that's simplifying. And I think the thing we often miss, we often think that the nations that they're sent to, to wipe out are innocent. We oh, always yeah, there's, take... there's, there's a long, complicated backstory of who the Canaanites are, what's going on. That's right. And, so and particularly with regard to their response to the God who made them. Mm. So God is saying that there's, there's an abhorrence here, that you are doing all these sorts of things wrong, and yes, uh, I'm actually going to send in my people as judgment on you, mm. as justice in that way. Mm. Um, I think it's when we start to recognize that uh, all of us in our hearts are terrorists out there, but all of us are, aren't living for mm. the kingdom of God, but living for the kingdom of Rowan or whatever your name is, right? Mm. Um, uh, no one else is living for the kingdom of Rowan except me. But, um, <laughs> and even I'm not. I'm trying not to. Uh, uh, but we forget that, that, that's in, that we've, we've caused war on our maker. Uh, it's like we've walked up to our parents and said, I don't, I don't think you're my parents. No offense. That, that, that's a, there's an issue there. Uh, and so we, we think that we're innocent. And there is no innocent person. Uh, we all deserve... God's judgment for rejecting him. Uh, in which case, now that still does flow over into how we act now, though, in the New Testament very clearly, as you said. Yeah, yeah. No, there isn't that kind of sense of we should run, run to these wars. No, no, now the kingdom comes mm. through the news of Jesus and uh, the kingdom. Uh, next question. Uh, is it sinful for a Christian to enlist in the military and go off to war? If they did, uh, what if they don't kill anyone while on the job? Okay, so there's a... There's a, there's a there's really, I think there's really... 
there's really two or three issues in that. So, so historically, a good way to put this is historically. So historically, there's been two major views in Christian history. One view is, that, is the pacifist view, which is that Christians should never engage in violence at all. And that means they should never engage in any job that involves violence. Okay? Now, even a Christian pacifist would say that a, a person could enlist in the military, they say a medic, or in a, a non-combatant role where they might be helping people. Um, I've even seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Anyone seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge? Yeah. It's an example of, 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 of a pacifist who did that, right? He enlisted in the, in, in the, in the military so he could act as a medic. So if, if you have the pacifist position, you can, I think you can enlist in the military, but only in jobs that don't involve violence. Now, the other view in church history, which is probably the more predominant one, is what's often called the just war theory. And this is the view that governments, not private individuals, but governments can use violence if necessary, to uphold justice within the region that they rule over. And think about it, our criminal laws are actually based on this. When our government says, you know, we don't want you to steal, that's not an optional request that if we don't obey it, they'll say, okay, fine, no problem, right? At the end of the day, if we, we violate that, they will send the police around and arrest us. And if we resist, the police will be dragged out, tasered. If we up the escalation, the police will up the escalation. And the end result is someone will be shot. Right? So, so there is a view in, in, in a kind of just war theory which sort of says, look, when it's necessary to keep a just peace within the area a government is over, they're allowed to use force when it's necessary and proportionate against a person who's trying to violate that peace. Right? And I, I, ta- I, I take the, that, that view to be correct. I think that's true. I, I, I think if you deny that view, you're committed to some kind of almost anarchism in, 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 in your thinking about governments. You know, you'd end up with a situation you couldn't pass laws, you couldn't have courts because all those things at the end are backed up by, by force. But that's allowing violence in a really limited situation. So if you accept that view, which I do, um, a Christian could enlist in the military, but they still would have a duty in certain, they still might have a duty in certain situations to um, selectively conscientious object. So for example, in, in the Vietnam War, there's a very famous case known as the My Lai Massacre, where the USGIs, the, the colonel ordered the Jewish GIs to go into the village and shoot every man, woman, and children, child in the village, and they did. You know, um, I would say that a Christian who served in the military would have a duty to disobey an order like that. You know, so yes, they would be allowed to use violence in certain contexts, but they also would have a requirement to not necessarily use violence as a blank check every single order they were given. Now, interesting, the modern military actually teach soldiers that's their duty. Much of um, the, the code that we teach soldiers today actually goes back to a lot of these theories about warfare developed by Christian theologians in the Middle Ages, as I said. Um, and the Nuremberg trials where the Nazi high command were executed for war crimes against humanity, one of their defences was, oh, we were soldiers and we were just following orders. And the Nuremberg trials said no actual fact. Legally, in international law, um, you, there's certain commands you should not obey. So I would say, yeah, a Christian can join the military, but at the end of the day, he has to realise his loyalty to Christ is above the loyalty to the government. And if the government gives a clear case, not necessarily an uncle, but a clear case where they're asking him to do something that isn't justified, you know, killing a, shooting a child in the head or, or you know, using, launching a nuclear weapon at a city or something like that, um, they would have a duty to um, refuse to obey the order. Well, that's our last question. If you've got more, um, we'd um, love to. No, that's not it. So... Thanks. Um, that's the last question. Uh, so if you've got more questions, we, we'd love you to um, come and have a chat afterwards. Um, come and have a chat to myself or Matt. Uh, why don't you give Matt a round of applause? Thanks so much for coming. But the key thing I want us to focus on as we close tonight, uh, before we sing, which we'll do in a moment, is we've seen two kingdoms, two humanities before us. We've seen the humanity that we lead off our own bat, where we say, look, this is how I want to make the world. And we've seen how that ends up. Picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. Picture of Cain and Abel. You've seen it throughout human history. The way that our own human pride and our own jealousy pushes us to do all sorts of atrocities. I've seen tonight the reality that that's not beyond any of us. Uh, They're just humans like you and me who have done these things throughout history. And we've also seen the reality that Jesus is bringing in a new kingdom. Uh, And partly what that last question that came up was was asking is, what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to join Jesus' kingdom? And the key thing I want us to recognize tonight is that what Jesus does is he comes and says, look, 
the way forward of all humanity, the future for humanity is found in treating me rightly. For I have lived the perfect life that you haven't. Uh, I've, I've honored God the way that we ought. I've lived perfectly. You want to see a perfect human being? You get Jesus. Uh, and he said, I, I've paved the way for you. And, and more than that, I've faced the penalty that you deserve for, for really a, a, an act of terrorism against God, for rejecting God, for, for putting um, yourself in his place, for making up the rules. And so Jesus said, when I died on that cross, I've died in your place. I've taken the rap for what you have done. And so what does it mean to call Jesus our king? Well, it means for us to come along and say, firstly, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for turning my back on you, God, for not treating you as I ought, for, for, for living a world where I am king. Thank you that Jesus died for me is the second thing. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you that Jesus died in my place. And thirdly, help me to make Jesus my king. Anyone who belongs to a kingdom treats uh, the person who is king or ruler or the government in that kingdom as their king, as their ruler. What does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? It means to live with Jesus as your king, not in order to be saved, but because he is God, because he has died in our place, because he's given us life. And so Jesus comes saying it's not about war now, not, not war with the world around us, but there is a war, a war with ourselves, that we're at war with God because we've turned our backs on Him. And trusting Jesus means, well, I'm going to come and say sorry. Thank you. Please help me to put you as your king. If tonight you've heard enough to go, yeah, look, I actually, I actually want in. I want to start our relationship with Jesus. I want to change my citizenship from the citizenship of me to the citizenship of Jesus. Uh, then I'd encourage you to say a prayer that's something like, sorry, thank you, please. I'm going to pray that in a moment. Uh, I'm just going to say, it's nothing amazing, like miraculous words, like a genie in a bottle that you kind of make them come out or something crazy. But he's talking to God, like any relationship. That's how you begin it. Uh, and so why don't I pray? And uh, if you want in at this point, if you want to say, yeah, I actually want to follow Jesus, then just kind of say that in your head to God now uh, as we pray. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you have not left us on our own, but that you have made your way known. We are sorry for the way that we have not treated you as God. We have not loved others as we should, that we've acted as terrorists against you and as people who've inflicted pain on others. Thank you that Jesus came and lived the perfect life, that he died our death in our place, and that he's risen again, showing that he's defeated death, the penalty for sin. Please help us to trust that Jesus is our King that he has died in our place. Please help us to, to live his way rather than our own, not in order that we might be saved, but because he has already saved us. So Father, tonight, as we think through the atrocities of war, the atrocities of the human heart, we ask that you would fix our eyes on your son, Jesus, that we might live for him, experiencing the great freedom that comes from the one that has won the war for us. We pray this in his great name. Amen.